So so you have uh, Brick Brick saying, you know, cats jump off of high things all the time. You'll be fine. Stretching the metaphor a little bit. Um, yeah. So... <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Boy, we are glad to be back here in season seven of No Script, only at the very, very cusp of a season long of great Awesome conversations. We had a really fun conversation about a brand new musical last week. And this week, we kind of go to the other end of the spectrum on that one. It's true. It's it's a wild ride here at No Script. We like to, <laughs> to kind of play the pendulum swing between different eras, and we're certainly doing that with this next play. Going to a familiar playwright for many in Tennessee Williams and his award-winning play, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Cat on Hot Tin Roof is kind of part of the big three of Tennessee Williams' plays, Glass Menagerie, Streetcar Named Desire, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. If you've read Tennessee Williams, if you've studied theater, you know this play, uh, as well as a lot of the rest of his body of work. But this is one that is often kind of lauded as one of the kind of premier scripts of his. Some people say it's the best script of Tennessee Williams, or some people say it's the one kind of closest to what was going on in his brain and his life at the time, even though Glass Menagerie was also fairly autobiographical. So it, right, yep. it's a, it is a heartthrob of a play. I don't, I guess I don't mean that in like a, uh, like a romantic way, but like a painful way, like makes your heart throb with the pain of what must have been going on in his life, let alone the life of these characters. Right, right. Without giving too much away from the uh, synopsis and our eventual conversation, I think it being a family play as opposed to some of those other ones, which is not quite like there's there's family in it. But this one's so centered on family and and uh, kind of family structures that I think it, it does pull on the heartstrings in a different way. But that conversation is to come. We're excited about it. But before we get there, we want to ask everybody who has not yet become a patron over at patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast to consider doing that. Uh, as a patron, you support the running of No Script. And those patrons that we have are what make doing the podcast possible. If you're a patron, thank you. Your financial support allows us to do this show. And if you're not, please consider it patreon.com slash no script podcast over there you can choose a tier and the tiers are different monthly amounts that you choose to contribute to no script the lowest tier is just a dollar a month and even that tier is hugely helpful for the running of the show uh it, it's kind of an expensive show to run and it has an expensive time commitment from jackson and i's part so we need that support to continue to do it if you're already a patron again thank you thank you thank you thank you and if you're not patreon.com slash no script podcast yes thank you to all of our patrons who have already made their way over there thank you all so much for considering it we'll see you at patreon.com slash no script podcast and now back to the script 
Here we go. I'm going to just give you a short context for the play. Um, the, the play, as we've already mentioned, is written by Tennessee Williams, one of his very famous scripts and uh, arguably one of his favorites um, uh, that, that, that he's written. And I think that ties into some of the kind of personal nature of it as well. Um, the play uh, was a, the Pulitzer Prize winner for drama in 1955. And the original production uh, aired in the same year at the Morosco Theater. Um, that production production had a number of famous names in it. Uh, those of you who are kind of uh, history buffs might know Burl Ives, um, as as well as the uh, actors Barbara Bel Geds and Ben Gazzara as uh, both Maggie and Brick, who uh, we'll learn more about in a minute. But some pretty famous names in them. Um, the, the, the play has continued to be produced. It had a pretty notable film adaptation in 1958, which starred Paul Newman and Elizabeth Taylor and Burl Ives reprised his role as uh, Big Daddy in it. So, so uh, it, it and it's continued to be revived. I think the most recent versions are uh, the National Theater uh, Online did a, uh, a recorded version of it that uh, aired at the Young Vic Theater over in London, and then uh, eventually at another theater where they where they filmed it at. So the play continues to be produced, continues to be read in theater history classes. Um, this is uh, th you know the age of the American drama and the age of the American uh, uh, family drama. And a lot of great playwrights are all writing around this time. Tennessee Williams, uh, O'Neill, uh, and the, the other one that I'm blanking at the moment, the kind of uh, hopes of American drama <laughs> playwrights uh, are all kind of tied into this era of playwriting. And Tennessee Williams brings that unique flavor of being very much an American Southern writer. Um, his plays yeah. are typically set across the South and bring Southern culture, Southern tensions. Um, and Tennessee Williams also is an incredible writer about class. And you see that really throughout his plays, these concerns and squabbles over class. And there's no doubt that that is in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof as well. Before I hop into a more general plot synopsis, I want to read you a quote from Tennessee Williams where he tells us what the play is about. One of the interesting features about the stage directions for this script, more than other plays I've read by Tennessee Williams or maybe even by any playwright, is just the explanation of what he's trying to do written into the stage directions throughout the play. So this is a stage direction from late in the play during a major confrontation scene between Big Daddy and Brick. He says, The bird that I hope to catch in the net of this play is not the solution of one man's psychological problem. I'm trying to catch the true quality of experience in a group of people that cloudy, flickering, evanescent, fiercely charged interplay of live human beings in the thundercloud of a common crisis. So that's what he says the play is about, as he describes it to the <laughs> reader, I guess, only the reader or the production only team, the, yeah. audience isn't seeing that. Um, late in the play. The play is about a family. Jackson said that in our little teaser. Um, and it's a family in Mississippi in the Delta. And it is a, uh, a hot Mississippi night in their enormous estate on the largest plantation in the Delta, is what is said. And it is the night of Big Daddy's birthday. Uh, the family is gathered to celebrate, and that family includes Big Daddy and Big Mama, the patriarch and matriarch. Uh, their two kids, Brick and Gooper. Yes, I said Gooper. 
and uh, brick and, and Cooper, brick yeah and brick uh, neither of them are uh, their names are big mama and big daddy i mean it's a right. it's a weird named family have to assume there's some nicknames in there i guess um, so Big Mom and Big Daddy, they have two sons, Brick and Gooper. Brick and Gooper are both married. Brick is married to Margaret, goes by Maggie, and Gooper is married to May. Gooper and May have a troop of children with them um, of various names and various – none of them are all that important <laughs> to the plot. They kind of come yeah. in and out throughout. Um, uh, Brick and Maggie are notably unmarried uh, – un- not unmarried. They're childless. And there are a number of other servant characters and a reverend and a doctor that run throughout the play. But the core of the play is those six people, Big Mama, Big Daddy, uh, Brick and Maggie and May and Gooper. And um, the other thing that's going on this night is that it is a celebration night, which seems odd if you remember the quote I read from Tennessee Williams about there being a common crisis. And the common crisis and the common celebration of the play are the same issue. And that's one of the fascinating pieces about the play. You see, the doctor has told Big Mama and Big Daddy that after a series of tests, this is prior to the action of the play, Big Daddy is does not have cancer. In fact, he's 100% in the clear. All he has is a minor issue in his bowels, and uh, it's going to cause him some discomfort, but definitely no cancer. He's totally fine, and they are celebrating Big Daddy being cancer-free. Now, the problem is that only Big Mama and Big Daddy believe that. The children and the spouses have been told the real truth by the doctor, again, prior to the action of the play, that Big Daddy actually has malignant, terrible cancer that has spread throughout his body to many organs. He is almost certainly going to die within the next year, probably needs to get on hospice care. They wouldn't have said hospice at the time. At the time, they just said morphine. But that's kind of what we think of today. Um, And so the children have gathered in part because Big Daddy has not yet written a will. And, uh, you know, he has a very large estate and a lot of money. And what's going to happen to that money when he passes is a subject of tension between the children. All of that is going on in the play, as well as a marital tension between Brick and Maggie that really defines the play. Uh, Brick and Maggie have not slept together in a very long time. Brick is refusing to sleep with Maggie because of some events that, again, happened prior to the action of the play. What happens in the play is that Brick is an alcoholic, um, an acknowledged open alcoholic. Prior to the action of the play, he's broken his ankle the night before. And so the play takes place in Brick and Maggie's bedroom on this plantation because he can't go anywhere else. So the birthday celebration takes place in the bedroom. All of the fights, the fight with Maggie that makes up Act 1, the argument with Big Daddy that makes up Act 2, and the family conference about the truth of the cancer that makes up Act 3 all occur in Brick and Maggie's bedroom. Um, because Brick is an alcoholic and Brick and Maggie are childless, uh, May and Gooper want to use that as a reason why Big Daddy should give over the running of the plantation and all of the money to Gooper when he passes. Now, this is all sort of hairy because nobody wants to tell Big Daddy that he's actually dying. He is living life again. He's very happy to be declared that he's going to have a long life now, even though that's not true. So just briefly, in Act 1, 
Brick and Maggie uh, discuss why they're not having sex anymore. What has led Brick to be an alcoholic? And what is, is that Maggie had an affair with Brick's friend Skipper. And uh, the reason why, she says, is that Skipper was actually, um, had romantic affection for Brick. And um, because of that, he sort of tried to prove that that wasn't true. Again, this is the 50s Mississippi, so being gay or queer at all would not be accepted. So to sort of prove his straightness, he had an affair with Maggie, um, but that kind of tore him up. And his unexpressed or perhaps expressed affection to Brick, it's a little unclear what happens after that, um, drives him to drink. He overdoses on alcohol. The hospital tries to save him, but they actually end up causing his death. Um, now that happening, partially because of Maggie, she had the affair with him, um, has led Brick to say, I'm no longer interested in you. In fact, he's disgusted with her um, and he's become an alcoholic as a result of that. So Maggie and Brick argue about that in Act 1. In Act 2, Big Daddy comes in for the birthday celebration. Big Daddy basically ends up kicking everybody else out to have a private conversation with Brick. The conversation is, I'm not going to die anymore. I thought I was going to die, but I'm not. I'm going to live this happy life, and I'm so happy. Why aren't you happy? What the heck is going on with you, Brick? Why have you become an alcoholic? And by the way, you and Skipper were kind of special friends, weren't you? And when he died, that led you to drink, didn't it? you got to get over this, Brick. Brick ends up telling Big Daddy that he actually has malignant cancer and is going to die. That ends Act 2. And Act 3, depending on which version of the play you read, is either right. the family conferencing with Big Mama to tell her that Big Daddy is going to die and then some aftermath stuff that you hear off stage, or they start to do that and Big Daddy comes in and he has a little bit of a speech about liars um, and then they leave. But in that Act 3, uh, Maggie tells the family she's pregnant. This is not true. Her and Brick have not slept together for forever, but she uses this as well as Brick's access to alcohol as leverage in the final scene of the play to convince Brick to sleep with her because they need to get pregnant. They've told the family that she's pregnant. And thus ends the fascinatingly complicated plot of <laughs> Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Yeah, yeah. So the, it's all, you know, intertwined in in this like who knows what when sort of uh, mentality. I, I like that you kind of laid it out with the common crisis and the quote from uh, Williams late in the play, a quote, uh, the, you know, a stage direction that you would expect in the front of the book. Um, uh, for, if for at all. I mean, if at how all, often yeah. does a playwright just write a note like, here's what I was trying to achieve with this play yeah. in terms of a theme <laughs> and general sensibility of the script. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's all organized around this common crisis and then uh, these 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 tensions between the characters. And and we, along with the, the family, slow get more and more information. I feel like a lot of Brick's life um, uh, for the last who knows how long, really, is slowly revealed even to the family, right? He's, he's a, he was in high school a, a, a great sports player. Um, he, he broke his ankle practicing or trying to do hurdles from when he was in high school. And he tried to do sports with, with Skipper and tried to organize a football team and all that failed. And now he's a, an announcer, that uh, a sports announcer. And even that has been lost to him. We find out all these things really slowly through the play at at kind of the rate that the family does for the most part 
Yeah, well, at the rate that the family decides to talk about them, I mean, that's the interesting mm, thing yeah. about this play is that they, as a group, have a very high context relationship. And in fact, many of them know things that other people think they don't know about them, but they actually right. do partially because of the setting of the play, which is this very public uh, plantation house where it's very hard to get any privacy. And so we learn things alongside the rate that the family decides they're comfortable talking about them, which mm-hmm. um, involves some alcohol, involves the lateness of the night, involves the emotional tensions of the family. But as they decide they're willing to now have this conversation, okay, now we're willing to have this conversation, which has freed us up to have this conversation, that is the rate at which the audience gathers the information. Yeah. Yep. And 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 the rate at which they're willing to tell the truth about the information too. Yes. Truth is a huge theme in this. The uh, over and over the kind of uh, I had to look up the word. Fortunately, they define it in the play, but mendacity keeps coming up throughout the play. Um, uh, a brick uses it as one of the the initial reasons that he claims for why he's drinking, which ends up being a bit of a front to the eventual story. Um, but then that's echoed by Big Daddy as well. All these people kind of floating around him, uh, especially uh, Gooper and May, trying to basically lie their affections to him so that he includes them in the will. So that that's part of it too, is who's lying, when, when does who know that the other is lying, and are they ever actually going to be honest with each other? Right, yeah. I mean, truth-telling, I think you could make a reasonable case if you ever had to in some sort of intro to dramatic lit class. You could make a reasonable case that truth-telling is sort of the central theme of the play. What's the truth? Are you able to tell it? What happens when you tell it? I mean, the fact that the play centers around really two big lies, the lie of Brick and Skipper and what their relationship was or wasn't, and the lie of Big Daddy's cancer are, I mean, that that's hard to escape, right? Those two big yeah. lies and the truths of what's behind them, whatever that is, defines the play. Yeah. So 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 one of those we know quite a bit about. We know like an empirical truth that uh, a lie is being told about Big Daddy's cancer. Some people know, some people don't. Um and and there's just the empirical fact that by the by the end of the play, uh we we know that he is in pain. Um one way or another, whether you whether uh, one ending has him kind of like uh uh saying se- seeming to have a bit more time to to him to kind of figure out the end of his life. The other version of the play, the play the version that I read, he's crying out in pain off stage and you wonder if it's like if he's dying now. So we know for sure that cancer is 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 racking him. The other lie is a little more subjective, right? We don't we we have to try to piece together the story of Brick and Skipper uh from comments from Brick and Maggie. And that's that's kind of the one that that leaves more um more discernment for how much trust you put in the stories and the lies, partial lies that people are telling around around their story of how Brick and Skipper interacted. Yeah, I mean, this play relies heavily on accounts from individual characters about things that happened in the past. And as you always butt up against when you have a play which relies on something which happened prior to the uh, events of the play and all you have are witness accounts, you have to decide what 
what reliability do the witnesses hold? And even more so, what benefit does it offer them to tell a specific story in a specific way? As Maggie, she's the first of the characters to tell us the story of Skipper and Brick's relationship. She really tells the story as if it's all about deep and harmonious love. And Brick has ruined deep and harmonious love from her and from Skipper. And both of those really can be fulfilled if he will begin sleeping with her again and they can resume their normal marriage. I mean, the sleeping up with her aside, their marriage has basically been put on pause as well, as well as the sex. And so she really frames the story as if it's about deep and abiding love. As Big Daddy tells his sense of what the story is about, it's more about shame and about the controlling of choices and about needing to, Brick needing to free himself from the shame. Big Daddy is surprisingly tolerant for a plantation owner in southern Mississippi in the 50s. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. He seems to kind of let let uh let let Brick enough rope to kind of get himself real tangled up in it and it doesn't seem to like interject too quickly. Part of that is the I think uh over and over he keeps repeating for the last 3 years I thought I was dying of cancer. So the there's kind of the adrenaline of this moment where he finally has the the turnaround where he's trying to like have these this heart to heart with with his son. Um, and, and yeah, and also what you were saying around Maggie, I think her goals are really fascinating in this play and leave, leave a lot of room for the, the, the actor to explore what she actually is, is kind of shooting for because she has so many lines that are, that attest to her love for Brick. Um, and the way she tells the story, she was trying to make her relationship with Brick stronger by trying to illuminate what she thought was a romantic relationship that Skipper was holding for Brick. Um, yeah, I think she says something like, we ended up sleeping together because both of us wanted to get closer to you. And she really yeah. puts the onus mm -hmm. of what happened between her and Skipper and then between Skipper and Brick in terms of whatever their relationship was. The onus of that gets pushed on Brick as if you are sort of cruel for putting in these sort of barricades in the way of this true, deep, earnest, real love that I have for you and Skipper had for you. Right. There's this, this great exchange between her and Brick where uh, he says, I think you've forgotten the conditions on which I agree to keep living with you. And she replies back, I'm not living with you. We, we occupy the same cage. And that and I think that uh, truth of her character um, drives a lot of their relationship, whatever whatever um, the ulterior motives were with her and her affair with Skipper. She is she is wanting to live their marriage well, at least in the moment. She's trying to figure out a way for them to uh, to to live well together. the The other part is she has a backstory around coming from a place where she didn't have money, didn't have uh, uh, security, and so uh, she. Uh, I mean, the 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 play is evident in this. She is is uh, much more driven in her pursuit of their hopeful involvement in the will than Brick is through the play. She is trying more things to try to be sure that they land in a secure place. So you also have that to play with in in Maggie as well. Yeah, and I think that the drive for her to secure her life is is a really central 
goal. It's it's she she has a beautiful monologue about growing up poor and what that did to her psychologically and what it does to her need for control, her need for um, to have some influence some way to protect herself against whatever the outside world is. And I think Brick sort of unfairly describes her and May as these sort of dueling cats, each trying to get their share of the plantation property. Um, because I, to me, it never seems like Maggie is interested in more than her fair share, uh, more than protection as a result of what's going to happen with Big Daddy's money. May, on the other hand, clearly her and Gooper are out for more than their fair share of the plantation property. But I, I also think as you think about Maggie, it's worth noting the the line that it's a little bit cliche because the line is on all the posters and backs of books and stuff. But she says to Brick early in the play, living with someone you love can be lonelier than living entirely alone if the one that you love doesn't love you. And if you're willing to live into a version of their marriage that isn't destroyed utterly for years, and you look and see a person who really is earnestly trying to reach out and repair a broken marriage because of a real affection, then you can discover that in Maggie, too. I'm not sure you have to, but you certainly can. Yeah, yeah, the the opportunity is there, especially if you then kind of dig into the, like, we, we learned so much from uh, both of their perspective about what their kind of courtship was like and uh, what their early marriage was like with uh, Brick and, and Skipper kind of trying to run sports competitively, competitively as a business and all the traveling around. She traveled with them for a while and kind of got a front row seat to their uh, their relationship. So, so yeah, you I think it's absolutely there to kind of... Kind of have this this honest desire for them to live a loving life together. Now her tactics are 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 the the stuff that's up for negotiation in terms of of honesty. Well, right. I mean the the big. <laughs> the big moral qualm at the end of the play <laughs> that it rings, honestly, look, it rings differently in 2020 than I'm sure it did in 1950 because she is really, I mean, it, it, look, if all you've seen is the movie version, Jackson and I talked about this before recording, then you don't, yeah. act, you don't have much of a sense of what the end of the play is really like. So don't, if all you've seen is a movie version, what I'm about to say may seem a little odd to you, but in the play... She, I mean, she really let's let's make no bones about it, right? She forces him to sleep with her, right? Yeah, I mean, she right takes about over. That? Yeah, she she bribes yeah. him, I guess you could say. You she blackmails him, you could say, but she exercises power to 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 influence him into bed into something that he does not want or says he doesn't want. Right, right. A, a brief Which should aside. be the same thing, right? I mean, we live in right. the age where we're much more attuned to issues of consent. So he he says he doesn't want to. Right. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, there's there's a lot of negotiation over whether or not he's going to sleep on the sofa or not. And the last like five pages of the play, there's there's been this tension the whole time as to whether whether or not um, Maggie can negotiate kind of our our. our a harmonious return to their relationship. Um, and, and at the end of the play, she just takes over. She hides the alcohol. So I don't, I don't, I, I mean, I feel a little, a little stretch saying she forces him to sleep with her. Um, she, she hides the alcohol from him and says that she won't give it back until he does. So um, there's, there's plenty of scenes where he's 
procured alcohol in other ways than 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 easy ways but n- nevertheless she she does blackmail him into it she does kind of set up the the expectation in the family that they will have a child soon and uh and so she she does kind of force the issue yeah and and it's not it, it's 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 a lot more um the power is much more in her court in the play. I agree. If you've seen the movie, they just changed the ending. It's not that ending at all. Um, so, so, but, but in the play, it's, the power is definitely uh, used by her at the, at the end. And I think an interesting question that as a director or as the actors, you'd have to parse out in production. And as we're readers, it's interesting to think about is the moment where Maggie says to the family, I'm pregnant with Brick's child. And what you would, I think you would expect to happen is Brick, in all of his cool alcoholic uh, detachment, to say, no, she's not. She's not. That's a lie. I mean, he's had no bones about being casually, drunkenly cruel to her uh, throughout the entirety of the play, pointing out that she's made an enormous, desperate, embarrassing lie in front of the entire family is not something that is out of character for Brick. In fact, it is exactly in character for Brick. Right. And so the decision not to do that, and it's so startling that Maggie actually comments on it when the rest of the family leaves, that he kept his mouth shut about that. I think that is the room probably that you as a director and as actors have to figure out what's going on in Brick's head after the events of this play. Where is he at in his desire or non-desire to resume this marriage? Because... Not deciding not to point out the lie in front of the family virtually guarantees that the pressure to conceive a child is going to ramp up from Maggie. And he could have prevented that on the front end. Mm-hmm. And there's so so there's that that kind of uh, uh you know that I, I feel a little bit like like character progress in that, right? Like maybe maybe these two have made their way to something else. Maybe his like not throwing her under the bus for the lie is a indication of a break in the armor, and maybe they're gonna tr- try to figure out a way to do it together. Well, it's, <laughs> there's a double entendre. Try to figure <laughs> out a way to. <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna do it, but try to figure out a way to make their w- marriage work together. And and yet there's also this element of of Brick's alcoholism that has uh, crescendoed by that point of the play. He's been uh, over and over um, saying that he's waiting for this click to happen in his brain, where he has enough um, liquor in his system that he no longer feels the pain of uh, of of uh, the the affair. Yes, and also of of a phone call that Skipper made to him as he was just about to die that he hung up on him on. Um, so there's so there's a lot of pain that he's trying to bury in his alcoholism, and this moment of of him kind of uh, a. Uh, not not ratting on Margaret, <laughs> um, and B uh, Margaret's uh, moving him to towards uh, the bed together um, happens once he has finally gotten that click to flip in his head, where he's kind of uh, hit the moment of of silence in his head. 
because so, of the alcohol, right? I mean, that's throughout yeah. the entire play, he's drinking as an end. I mean, you could almost say the goal of Brick is to drink enough to have the click happen in his head and peace right. to come. And that's all he's really after. Right? Uh, probably a bad analysis of him, but it certainly is right. there in the text. Now, at the same time, as you think about Brick as a character on a journey, I want to read another quote from Tennessee Williams. He wrote a small essay about why, in my version of the script, he included both endings. And he talks about why he changed the ending some and the director that he worked with. And he, the director wanted him to make one change that he did not feel he should make. So this is what he says. I felt that the moral paralysis of Brick was a root thing in his tragedy. And to show a dramatic progression would obscure the meaning of that tra- tra- tragedy in him. And because I don't believe that a conversation, however revelatory, ever affects so immediate a change in the heart or even conduct of a person in Brick's state of spiritual disrepair. So the director had said, you know, it really feels like Brick needs to see a change or undergo some sort of transformation or mutation into something new as a result of this play. And Tennessee Williams counters and says, well, actually, the fact of his stuckness is part of the tragedy. And yes, he has this probably life-changing conversation with Big Daddy and events of this birthday weekend. But in the immediate, you're not going to see the effects of that conversation on someone like Brick. First of all, will he even remember it the next morning? He's so drunk, I don't even know. But even if he did, right, those kinds of changes take a person a long time to undergo. What will become of Brick and Maggie is an outstanding question of the play. Right. And, and yeah, it's, it's really ambiguous, right? Like you, like the, uh, you're, you're, you're exactly right. Who knows if he's going to remember this tomorrow? And yet some stuff has happened. Stuff that cannot be walked back or re-obscured has happened as a result of his conversations with Big Daddy, where he's gotten some, some things off of his chest finally. He'll probably, he, he, he says himself that he was nowhere near drunk at that point. Um, so that's, that's something he'll remember. And the family has moved, right? And we, we know that, uh, we, we now have the proof that Big Daddy is dying soon. Um, and that's that's not a moment that this family is gonna like reset from or choose to forget about and throw into into the onto the back burner again. So stuff is moving them forward. We don't get to see it. It's gonna take a long time. Um, and and that's that's so true and right, right? Like you don't you don't flip a switch and suddenly you're a different person as a result of a conversation. This, But instead, this is almost like a seed planting moment. And, you know, we don't get to see if that seed ever becomes a tree. And the, the kind of the crucial to me, see if you agree with me, Jackson, I don't believe Brick has ever admitted to anyone that Skipper called him Uh, on that night with the drunken admission. And my clue to that is very early in the play, Maggie says something like, now when I told you about the affair, and Brick says, Skipper told me about the affair. And it appears that Maggie doesn't really understand what he means. So it doesn't appear to me that she knows Skipper called him and made this drunken confession. And so when Brick, in his big conversation with Big Daddy, admits finally about this phone call, this is a major revelation and admittance moment in the life of this broken human. And I'll just read you what he says. He says, I let, I left out a long distance call which I had from Skipper in which he made a drunken confession to me and on which I hung up. 
last time we spoke to each other in our lives. Almost immediately afterwards, Big Daddy says, well, now we've come to it. This is what you're disgusted with. He says, you, you dug the grave of your friend and kicked him in it before you'd face truth with him. Yeah. No, I think I, I, I agree with you. I think that is the first moment where he has dug, well, really, where anyone has dug deep enough into him to get him to admit this out loud. Um, that is the, and it's, and it's so, it's so, uh, it's just well written, right? Like if you, if you go back beat by beat, then the, the other one, the, the beat back of that was disgust and the beat back of that was mendacity. And both of those things, um, he, he throws that around at other people, at Maggie at his dad at, at at the situation at the way the world is but each of those in fact applies to his uh disgust with himself and his uh uh disgust at his own mendacity his own uh kind of hiding of this and it's interesting the way big daddy puts that isn't it he says you dug the grave of your friend and kicked him in it before you'd face truth with him and brick responds mm. his truth not mine and that's, to me, if you're playing Brick, this is the question for you. Brick says, it's his truth, not mine. And is that mendacity? Is that a falsehood? What, what is Brick's truth? What can he not confront with Skipper or with Maggie? And there's a lot in the play for you to uncover very early in the play as he and Maggie are discussing their uh, totally broken sex life. Maggie says something like, I'm just paraphrasing here. You were always an incredible lover, but the reason why you were so good in bed was that you always seemed so disinterested. You always, yeah. and so that allowed you to be very sort of attentive and because you weren't so passionate, you were able to be whatever, you know, good in bed. And, uh, you know, if you're playing brick, what does that mean? Your, your wife is saying you were always disinterested in bed. At the same time, your wife is saying your friend, this lovely, incredible friend that you've had your whole life, probably was queer in some way and had affection for you. So what does all that mean for who you are, what you want, what your truth is that you can't face? Yeah, what are, what is the, all the monologues that Brick has around what the cultural uh, expectations are around queer folks, especially queer folks in the South? Uh, he's 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 like trying to unpack all of this societal expectations, some of the stage directions, which are the words of Tennessee Williams push us in that direction too. Uh, around like he is trying to uh, uh, you know deal with this whole society around him that is telling him something of of moral value you around the way uh his and skipper's relationship was so so yeah that that line his truth not mine that's a that's a decision line there's so much around so much evidence around uh that line for you to say either he believes that in the moment and this is you know a friendship that became something more to skipper that didn't become something more to brick or this is something uh, that was more for both of them. And Brick is failing to, uh, not failing, failing sounds, sounds so judgy. Brick can't uh, bring himself to fully name it, even to himself. And if you don't have this moment of revelation that may someday prompt change, then the play is sort of lacking in plot. 
I mean, I know that sounds crazy right. because right. I spent so long describing the plot, but if this isn't a moment where Brick finally is able to admit something that he has not admitted to anyone, and that's going to somehow affect his life, his marriage, whatever going forward, then in terms of the part of the plot that is about him and Maggie, what actually happens in the plot until the last three or four pages when Maggie says, I'm right. pregnant, and that means we have to sleep together because I told everybody I was pregnant, and you didn't disagree with me. I mean, mm-hmm. if you take out that chunk, what happens between them if not this moment of revelation with his father? And if it, and if that moment of revelation doesn't happen, it just doesn't... It, it, a, the plot, there's no plot, like you're saying, and a, and B, it doesn't make sense. His, his tenacious... Um, uh, ambivalence in the first part of the play towards Maggie um, is is consistent. Um, uh, it, we we said earlier that um, it, it it would make complete sense with the character that we have met so far for him to just say in a kind of you know slurred voice, "No, we're not we're not getting pregnant. We haven't slept together for months." Um, it, that, that, that's his mood through the whole play. That's his like driving principle is no matter what she throws at him, he's not interested. He's not, he's not checked in at all. Um, so, so it, it, it doesn't make good plot sense to then just like by virtue of a little bit of blackmail at the end, he flips that. There has to be something else that has worked on him this, this night and through the conversation with his father. And I think that, 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 um, crucible moment, uh, could be exactly it. I love that phrase, tenacious ambivalence. If I ever direct this play, and I'd love to, I want to talk to the character, the actor playing Brick about tenacious ambivalence because the state of being ambivalent is boring. But if you super boring, if, right? But if you if you have a brick who's trying to be ambivalent, right? Who's putting all the energy he has into his ambivalence. That becomes an interesting thing to watch, and that is kind of that center piece of who Brick is. I'm going to put everything I have into being ambivalent, into not caring. And that is why the broken ankle is so important, isn't it? Because you have to take a person who wants nothing more than to have nothing to do with all of this. If you're going to have him be the center character of the play, literally on stage almost the entirety of the play— if you're going to have that character who wants nothing more than just to get out of there and have nothing to do with this, to be stuck on stage, you got to stick him there somehow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and yeah, and, and have something that removes his power to leave you and, and, and allows other characters to remove his power to leave, which happens over and over. Um, uh, Maggie does it a little bit more subtly. She just doesn't give him his crutch in a couple scenes, but big Papa like steals it from him and throws it across the room from him, um, which leads to another. Repetition is important in this play. Uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof is repeated often. Mendacity is is repeated often. But you also have this repeated line from Brick about I will cr- I will hop or I will crawl or something along those lines when when his crutch is taken away from him. And that happens like three or four times. The exact uh, same same line over and over. So so you, and which also speaks to tenacity, right? It's not easy. He, he would just, if he was just um, just completely ambivalent, he'd say, "Well, that's fine. I'll just lie here." That's not exactly what he's doing. He is. He is. Well, it, it is actually something. what he's doing, right? It's <laughs> like, not what he's yeah. saying. For all of right. his highfalutin speech about, "I'll just crawl out of here," then you sob. He uh, he never does quite do that. 
Yeah, it's true. He, <laughs> he never makes it fully away. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're, you're absolutely right about the crutch, right? It's important to give people a way to have power over Brick, too, because who is Brick? An incredible ex-athlete, a powerhouse who's tenaciously ambivalent and who doesn't seem to care about his financial or familial obligations. So how do you have power over a person like that? How do you exchange power with a person like that? He would seem to have all the power all the time by virtue of his physical prowess, his ambivalence, his uh, detachment because of the alcohol, and his disregard for familial obligations. How would you ever claim any kind of power interchange in those scenes? And they really become negotiations over objects, especially in the scenes with Big Daddy. Big Daddy uses both the alcohol and the crutch as objects with which to wield power over Brick and force him to do what Maggie has a much harder time forcing him to do which is to talk more openly because he's coming from a position of weakness. Right, right. And a position of kind of uh, familial respect. It's clear that everyone is like under Big Papa's th- or Big Daddy's thumb. Um, no no one is going to like even even uh, Gooper's kind of machinations and May's relentless throwing of the children in front of in front of Big Big Daddy uh, doesn't work to to the degree that anyone really tries to make it work. And that's certainly true of the way Brick behaves. They have this they have this kind of uh, different bond, though, between them. In some sense, uh, like there's there's a lot that so much of the play is wrapped up in the the tension between Brick and Maggie. And yet so much of the dialogue in the play or almost a similar I, I didn't do the math on it, so I can't say this went with any sort of authority. But a similar amount of dialogue is is spoken between uh, Big Daddy and Brick. Yeah, off the top of the cuff, I would think you're right, that the two longest scenes, which appear to be roughly equal in length and proportion to the importance of the play, are between Brick and Maggie and Brick and Big Daddy. Mm Mm-hmm. So you you kind of you kind of have to wonder if he isn't the only person who can get to brick in this way, um, and and even then too it's it's kind of fun to think about the one of Mar- Maggie's last lines in the play has to do around this this power that brick had prior to him being laid up with the injury and prior to his uh, sinking into liquor he she says I used to think that you were stronger than me and I didn't want to be overpowered by you. But now, since you've taken to liquor, you know what? I guess it's bad, but now I'm stronger than you, and I can love you more truly. And that's that's pretty indicative of, of exactly what we're talking about. Brick has fallen in more ways than one, um, and is broken in more ways than one, which allows these two, really, these two principal players in Big Daddy and in Maggie to work on him and try to untangle what what he's in. And speaking of Big Daddy, I want to ask what your sense is of the decision made by Tennessee Williams to give the audience so much dramatic irony in the case of Big Daddy. Because we know from, I mean, I would have to look again, but it's like the third page of my script that Big Daddy is dying of cancer, that this false that this false clearing that he and Big Mama have been given is indeed false, that he is not clear of cancer, that the cancer has taken over his entire body and his death is imminent. And so much of Big Daddy's portion of the play is his absolute cheering, his enormous 
joy to the point of almost disgusting joy, a joy that hurts the people around him, his wife, his his relationships with his son, the other son, I mean, Gooper. I mean, the, a joy that is so overpowering that it may ruin his life that yeah. we know through the entirety of that that the joy is a false joy. I mean, Tennessee Williams could have not told us that until later, right? We could have learned that along with Big Mama. The, maybe none of the people had to know that. If, you know, in a different writing right. of the play, the doctor gathers them all together in Act Three and says, "Okay, I know I told you this, but this is actually the truth." And the audience goes, oh, "We just heard right. him say how excited he was to be alive." But no, we know through that whole Act Two that Big Daddy is fooling himself. And why? Mm-hmm. What do you? Why? Why give us that much dramatic irony over that powerful and important of a character? Yeah, I mean, I mean, part of it is is uh, I think I think it's just it's just good playwriting for the type of play that it is. <laughs> I think the the gotcha moment at the end, if we find out at the same time as Big Mama, um, feels like a feels like a. Um, a magic trick that's too good or something like that, or, or uh, a reverse deus ex machina or something like that at the end of, of this thing that completely ungrounds everything that you just watched. Um, so instead we get to, we get to kind of writhe in discomfort um, through the play as, as he uh, attests to his joy, attests to his, his uh, love of life, his love of women and, and makes his whole family uncomfortable as he goes too far and all of that. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, we, we get that experience throughout. I I wonder if too, though, you kind of, you kind of have this, um, this same sense that though, um, Big Daddy is, is moving Brick along the lines towards trying to take control of his life, um, and maybe even has some success, you have the knowledge that it didn't necessarily, is, is not necessarily working for him either, so you you have the same sense um, in in him as he is trying to uh, straighten out his son's life that this is not a fix it moment for him either in the same way that this is not a fix it moment for bricks. There's big things happening in it for for both characters, but this is not a clean uh, reset button. This is not a clean uh, moment where he takes the high road or something like that. We know that there is a, a terrible. Uh, underpinning of truth that even he doesn't really know fully. And I wonder too, if some of it isn't Tennessee Williams offering the audience a very obvious example of the kind of self delusion that is occurring in all the characters in much more subtle ways. I mean, Tennessee Williams offers you some hints that big daddy may suspect, even if he's not willing to admit it to himself that this may not just be like a bowel issue, even though the doctor said it. There are several stage directions. At one point, Tennessee Williams even says, like, Big Daddy probably thinks to himself here, boy, this uh, sure seems a lot more painful than it should, but doesn't end yeah. up saying it and things like that. And and uh, there, th- that kind of self-delusion is, again, we talked about truth-telling being kind of one of the central aspects to the play. And, of course, we're not saying just truth-telling to each other, but truth telling to oneself too, right? I mean, for Big Mama, one of the central things for her is that she seems unwilling to admit to herself the disdain that Big Daddy is clearly showing her, 
right? Uh, May and Gooper seem unwilling to admit to themselves the disdain and disrespect that this family has for him, them, and frankly, in return, that they have for this family. Maggie maintains a self-delusion that she's going to somehow win the romance back to her marriage. And then by the end of the play, sheds that deception in favor of a much more pragmatic way to secure her marriage and her relationship, if not in an emotionally healthy way, in a financially secure way. And, of course, Brick's self-delusion is a much more central question of what the play is about and who Brick is. But truth-telling to oneself is, seems to be just as important as truth-telling to each other. And in that case, then, Big Daddy having these bold, loud, enormous lies that everybody in the room, us, the audience, and Brick, the other person in the room, knows are false, becomes that kind of obvious metaphor of the subtle realities of the other characters. Right. It becomes the most illuminative when he's like trying to tell him that uh, living with liquor is a way to like self-delude yourself and not fully in- engage with the world. So you, you get that irony um, that, that he is, in fact, doing that to himself, but in a different way, in, in, in a, a, a more self-convincing sort of way. So, so that, that, that really provides a side-by-side when, when we get to know and when we know that he probably knows to some degree and is just staying blind to it. Yeah, definitely. I wonder, Jackson, if we might spend maybe just the last three minutes reflecting a little bit on the central metaphor, title metaphor of the play. Um, Tennessee Williams, boy, I tell you what, that guy knows how to beat a metaphor to death. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, goodness, the streetcar named Desire. I can't tell you how sick I get of hearing Blanche say, a streetcar named Desire through the entirety of that play. The glass menagerie seems a little bit on the nose. Even like a more more obscure play like the Rose Tattoo. It's like, oh my God. Goodness. And boy, he does not disappoint in this play, huh? How many times do you think Cat on a Hot Tin Roof is said in the course of this script? I mean, in the first act alone, I think it's five-ish. Yeah, and it (laughs) doesn't stop. (laughs) It doesn't stop. Yeah, absolutely. No, the... uh, yeah, over and over this analogy is brought up. The cat on a hot tin roof. Um, uh, Maggie refers to herself as the cat throughout in kind of like an empowering way, um, like this a persona that she takes on so that she can survive well or something like that. And um, it's like a dual persona, which is, I think, maybe the most interesting part of the metaphor is this Maggie the cat part. Because in the same time, she sort of refers to herself as sort of like an animal in terms of helplessness and unable to control, like the sort of human sensibility of control of oneself. There's that part of the metaphor, but then there's also this sort of wily, clever, intelligent pragmatism that comes with the cat metaphor too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's the the uh, kind of throwing of the metaphor into her face that Brick does around um, him saying it's just you just need to jump off the roof, like go have an affair, go find a lover. I don't care what you do. Our, our agreement is is not such that I care about that anymore. He lies um, <laughs> to some degree. You can get right, because the metaphor <laughs> is like Maggie says, my position by virtue of our marriage being 
for all intents and purposes, over between us, but still a legal, financial, and life choice fiction that we have to keep up. My position in that and the lack of security that affords me uh, is my position is so untenable that it's like being a cat who has to lie on a very hot, you know, scaldingly hot Mississippi tin roof. Yeah, and choose whether to remain there um, or to, you know, risk the leap off. Um, so so you have uh, Brick Brick saying, you know, cats jump off of high things all the time. You'll be fine. Stretching the metaphor a little bit. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so, yeah, I think, yeah, that's that seems to be the, the, the central image or the central... Uh, uh, I mean, obviously, it's a central metaphor for the play, but that I think that that has some real bearing on the character of Maggie. You know, she tries so hard in this play to outmaneuver May, who is just uh, a cudgel wielding uh, <laughs> a woman wielding the cudgel of her children through the play, trying to get them into the good graces of both Big Mama and Big Daddy. So, so you have her just trying to negotiate the whole time, all while. Uh, getting severely roasted to extend the metaphor <laughs> even more by uh, by Brick, who just won't won't uh, receive any of her efforts with with any sort of acceptance. And I I don't know if Tennessee Williams intended this or not, but every time I read the play, it occurs to me that Maggie is so self aware about being the cat on the hot tin roof, but definitely who's not is Brick. And I, I wonder if the metaphor is intended to apply to him in a way that we are supposed to catch, too. Because in the same way that the cat could just jump off the hot tin roof, I mean, Brick has the ability to take control of his life. Now, of course, alcoholism is a debilitating addiction, um, but the sense that he could go through some rehabilitation and come out on the other side, everybody, including him, sort of admits that's the reality. The question is just his interest in that. Um, for better or for worse, that's the world that Tennessee Williams wrote to play in. And so, you know, is Brick going to be the cat that just continually suffers by choice or chooses to leave this cage, this hot tin roof? Again, I don't know if that metaphor is intended to uh, apply more to Brick uh, in, a, in a subtle way that we're supposed to catch or if it really is more about Maggie um, in it being the title. I don't know. Well, the play is full of repetition, of metaphors, of a deep untangling of, of familiar relationships, lies, and 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 half-truths, and all that business. We could spend another hour talking about it if we could, but this is about the end of the podcast time on it. Fortunately, we can continue talking about this play with all of you out there in podcast land. So, if you want to keep talking about, I almost said a streetcar named Desire, uh, a cat on a hot <laughs> <laughs> Cat on a Hot Tin Roof by Tennessee Williams. Uh, we'd love to keep talking with you about it. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about this play with you. If you want to recommend the podcast, that would be a huge help. Send folks to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Podbean, where we're hosted. If you have a hard time navigating those kinds of sites, but you have a Facebook, you can connect with us easily on Facebook. Just like us on Facebook. Then every Monday, the episode will come out with a link published right there for you to click and listen. It's just as easy as that. 
We, uh, like we said at the top, are starting off this new season or looking forward to the many conversations that we are going to have. So until next week, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. We'll see you.